Psalm 1 last week was certainly a blessing, and I'm really excited to get into Psalm 2 this week. I thought I could preach through the 12 verses in one sermon, but it's it would have been an hour and 15 minutes, so uh, it's going to be a, a little bit shorter than that, looking at verses 1 through 6, but I'll... I have to admit, I've never preached on Psalm 2 until this day, and just spending the time studying it has been amazing. I thank God for what God has revealed in this psalm. So we'll read together, or I will read, and you can follow along Psalm 2. We'll read the whole psalm, and we'll come back to those last six verses next week. Psalm 2, beginning in verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware or pottery. Now, therefore, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. What a psalm. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Father in heaven, God, thank you that Jesus Christ, your anointed, came to this earth, took on human flesh, Thank you that he was risen by your power from the dead, victorious over sin, death, and the grave. He has ascended back to you, and now he reigns victorious. God, may we submit ourselves unto him, do homage to him, kiss his feet as it were, and worship him that he not become angry. May we find our refuge in this one, the one that's the sovereign, the eternal, the glorious Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's our prayer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a world that's at war with God. More moral restraints have been cast aside. People have become their own gods, as it were, seeking to establish their own kingdoms apart from God's sovereign hand and perfect standards. 
Our society is pushing the limits of morality like they've never been pushed before. The behaviors of the modern world are no different or maybe worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. What used to be done in private is now paraded down Main Street. Certainly in America, we have never seen a time like this when moral restraints have been torn asunder and the wickedness of man is pushing the limits of God's patience. But we must understand, all of us, that this is exactly what's been in the hearts of man from the fall. We're all born in this this world at enmity with God, determined to do our own thing, to establish our own righteousness apart from God's righteousness. We are determined to enthrone rulers just like ourselves, to rule according to the ways of man. We're all born into this world in Adam with his sin and guilt imputed to us. As David said, in sin did my mother conceive me. And we demonstrate that we're in sin's domain when we personally choose to participate in it, to practice sin. For all have sinned and all fall short of God's glorious standard. In essence, we're born children of the evil one, born in the domain of darkness, following the course of this world system, following the prince of the power of the air, the power of an evil and spiritual realm that is against God. So we're going to see this morning, it is this psalm, Psalm 2, that tells it like it is. Here David declares the total depravity of the human race in graphic display. He pictures the nations shaking their fist, as it were, in the face of God, rising up in cosmic treason against the Lord and his anointed, against his sovereign reign. It is this psalm that explains what we're facing in this 21st century It explains Hollywood and all their shameful deeds. It explains the media and all their deceptions. It explains the education system and their anti-God agenda. It explains the sexual revolution. We're living in a world given over to total depravity in its fullness, in a world that's cast off moral restraints. So it is this psalm that poetically depicts the world in which we live. The world, this age in which God has placed us. He has sovereignly placed us here. You know, you can pick up the newspaper and you can seek to find something that's true that's going on in the world. And you might find a glimmer of truth in some places. But it is clear, folks, this psalm is more accurate and more up-to-date than any modern-day publication. God has spoken through his servant, David. God has given us his word, so it's imperative that we pay attention this morning to what God has spoken. He has spoken, and he has spoken clearly. But before we get into the text, let's try to understand a few details about this psalm. We attribute it to David because the people who heard the testimonies of Peter and John attributed this psalm to the Holy Spirit through David in Acts chapter 4, verse 25. Understand this is not the second psalm to be written. Psalm 90 was the first written by Moses about 1400 B.C. The last was Psalm 126, written between 450 and 400 B.C., possibly by Ezra. 
So the book of Psalms is a hymn book that took nearly a thousand years to write. That's amazing. It's not in chronological order. There was a Jewish committee that arranged the Psalms in the order that we find them today to be their hymn book. Psalm 1 and 2 are a unit. Remember Psalm 1 from last week? They go together and they serve as gatekeepers for the entire book of Psalms. Psalm 1 begins, how blessed is the man, or all the blessednesses of the man. Psalm 2 ends, how blessed are all who take refuge in him. In Psalm 1, we have two peoples, two paths and two destinations. In Psalm 2, we have two kingdoms, one that will be destroyed and one that is eternal. These psalms together tell of the blessedness of the child of God. In Psalm 1, we see the blessedness of being in the right people group, the godly, on the right path, which is the narrow path, and heading in the right to the right destination, which is heaven. In Psalm 2, we see the blessedness of being in the right kingdom, taking refuge in the sovereign, the eternal king. It is those who are in the divine kingdom, the kingdom of God's dear son, that are the people of God of Psalm 1, that are on the right path, that are heading to glory. Psalm 1 identifies the blessedness of being on the right path and the destruction of being on the wrong. Psalm 2 tells us that we must choose carefully. It tells us that God mocks our rebellion against his sovereignty and his anointed, his Messiah. If you reject his anointed, he will break you with a rod, it tells us. He will shatter you like pottery. You will spend eternity separated from his grace and mercy, experiencing the wrath of God for all eternity. There will not be a time that you will not experience his burning wrath. We must be in the right kingdom. We must bow before his sovereignty. This psalm is broken down into four sections. Many Bibles break it up that way. Each section with three verses. Verses 1 through 3, the rebellion of the nations. Verses 4 through 6, the indignation of the Lord. Verses 7 through 9, the inheritance of the Son Verses 12 through, excuse me, 10 through 12, the call to repentance. This psalm had a near fulfillment in David's day. David, in part, is actually describing the rebellion against the kingdom of Israel in his day, or about to happen. But there is a far fulfillment in the day of the coming Messiah. You see, many peoples have a many prophecies, and this is significant, folks. If you want to understand prophecy, many prophecies, Old Testament and even New Testament, have a double fulfillment. Or think of it like this, a partial fulfillment in the near future and a complete fulfillment in the distant future. David is describing the rebellion against his kingdom of that day as well as the rebellion of the coming Messiah and his domain. It is the same people in each group, those who are outside God's kingdom. The Davidic covenant promised David that one of his descendants would rule and reign forever with righteousness and justice. So in part, this psalm is fulfilled in David, yet this psalm primarily points to the descendant of David, 
that will rule and reign forever. That's to whom this psalm beautifully unveils the anointed, the Messiah, the son of Yahweh. It describes him. It describes his kingdom. It describes his coming. It describes his grace and refuge on all those who repent. This is a consequential psalm. It applies to you and it applies to me. It applies to all people of all time. It is quoted in Acts 4, Acts 13, Hebrews 1, Hebrews 5, Revelation chapter 2, Revelation 12, Revelation 19, and it's alluded to in Revelation 1. It begins with verses 1 through 3, and it's here that we see the rebellion of the nations. Verse 1, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples... Peoples of the nations devising a vain thing. Notice it's nations plural. It's referring to all nations apart from the kingdom of God. It's every nation that's in an uproar. Uproar speaks of commotion, of agitation, a civil disturbance, of insurrection. Why are the nations in an uproar, he asked. And the peoples devising a vain or an empty thing. This is the condition of all peoples outside the kingdom of God. This is not just some people. It's all who are outside his domain, outside the kingdom of God. There are no good people. Some may exercise their depravity less than others. But all are totally depraved. Sin has permeated every part of their beings, just like it had permeated every part of our beings. That's how we're born. Those outside the kingdom are not sitting on the fence, as it were. They are on the side of rebellion against God. They're following their father, the devil. They are in the kingdom of darkness. They're plotting here a vain, a futile, an empty thing. They're collaborating futile things in the kingdom of darkness, things that are useless, that are vain, things that are in opposition to God. How can we overthrow his kingdom? How can get, get away, how can we get away with not submitting to his kingdom? Yet it's illogical to rebel against God. It's completely illogical to go against his kingdom and his sovereign rule. In verse 2, the psalmist turns to the leaders of the nations whom are, in a sense, representing, fulfilling their desires, participating in their sin, leading in their rebellion. Verse 2, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. You see, the rulers of this world may not agree on many things, But there's one thing that they agree on. They stand together. They stand united against the Lord and his anointed. The first fulfillment was David. But they're also standing against the eternal anointed one, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is not an anointed like David was. The Lord Jesus Christ is the anointed, the one to whom heaven and earth will one day bow. Oh, how foolish it is to take counsel against this sovereign one, the Lord of glory. Remember Herod the Great, who sought the location of the young Jesus to put him to death? He had all the male children, age two and under, murdered in an attempt to assassinate 
the coming king. Maybe in his mind he was protecting his kingdom, but I would say that he's trying or was trying to prevent the Messiah's reign because he did not want this God to rule over him. This is the kind of rebellion described in verse 2. This is the rebellion that's in the hearts of all men outside the kingdom of God. The psalmist continues to describe the rebellion in verse 3, but let's read it together with verse 2. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Verse 3 describes their counsel. This is what they say when they come together in council. This reveals the hearts of men apart from the kingdom of God. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. The picture is tearing apart the restraints of the sovereign Lord. These are acts of seeking to live apart from divine control, apart from God's standards, the things that control us that we don't like. You see, these people desire to be free from all moral restraints. They do not want to be limited by God's law. Today, they want to choose their own gender, to marry whomever they please, even of their same gender. They want to define the family as they see fit. They do not want any sexual restraint. They don't want to be controlled by God's cords and his feathers, so they cast away those restraints. They disregard them. They do their own thing. This is the condition of man and their leaders since Adam's fall. This is human history. These are the people who crucified the Lord of glory. These are all people outside the kingdom of God, and this is what we're seeing around us. The nations have cast off moral restraints to serve themselves and to establish their own righteousness. But what a feeble attempt to remain in the grips of depravity, to continue in the kingdom of darkness. It's futile. It's helpless. You see, the people have taken their stand and they have spoken. But now God is going to speak in verses 4 through 6. And we see here many things, but we see the scoffing of the Lord. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Notice, first of all, he sits. God is not in heaven, wringing his hand, having a panic attack. He's not worried that peoples of this world will overthrow him. Not at all. He's not anxiously waiting for somebody to bow before him and cry out for mercy. No, not at all. He sits. Folks, this one, the king of glory, is seated on the throne where he sovereignly reigns, and nothing happens outside his sovereign decree. He is the supreme sovereign of all, the eternal sovereign. Isaiah saw him. He saw him in his glory, seated seated upon a throne, high and lifted up, exalted, glorious. His train filled the temple. The foundation shook at his voice. The house was filled with smoke. All of this pointing to his power and glory and sovereignty, his reign. The son of Korah proclaimed, Psalm 47, 8, God reigns over the nations. 
God sits on his holy throne. The psalmist in Psalm 93 also declares, The Lord reigns, he's clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Your throne is established of old. You are from everlasting. This is the God that we serve. This is God's anointed one. Again, the psalmist said in Psalm 10, 6, the Lord is king forever and age. Excuse me. The Lord is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his hand. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. This is certainly not a, a hilarious laugh. It's a laugh of mockery at their feeble, impossible attempts to cast away moral restraints and to somehow believe that they're not going to be held accountable. See, it's to him, the sovereign one, that we must give an account. Isaiah says, chapter 40, verse 15, all the nations of the world are a drop in the bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scale. It cannot be measured. We're that insignificant. So all the rulers, all the kings, all the nations take their stand against him. They rebel against him, believing that they can somehow get away with it, that they can stand up to the God of glory. Yet he is the Lord of glory. He is sovereign. He rules the nations with infinite power and wisdom. And one day he will judge in righteousness, perfect, holy righteousness. What a joke it is that men, that even we, rebel against this sovereign one who is enthroned in heaven. How ludicrous. Think of it this way. And this is the way I've thought of it for many years. For a man to fight against God is but a gnat trying to beat its head against a million-pound boulder, trying to move it from its position. It's impossible. It's that ludicrous. You see, no one gets a vote in the divine council. I'm glad for that. No one gets a vote in the divine council. God, in his perfect wisdom and knowledge, decrees all things according to the counsel of his will. There's only one theocracy, the rule of one, the anointed. It is from God's throne in heaven. The psalmist said, Psalm 33, 8 and following, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast, speaking of his um, omnipotence, really, that he's all-powerful. But then listen to verse 10. The Lord nullifies the counsels of the nations. Here we go. He nullifies the counsels of the nations and frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, folks. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. You see, the Lord, the Lord God is seated on his throne in heaven. He is sovereign and there is no other. 
there's no one else to whom you will ultimately give an account. After God finishes his laughing and scoffing, he speaks. And this is where the speaking part comes in verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king (coughs) upon Zion, my holy mountain. Understand this. See, God's immutable. He doesn't change. And the scripture tells us that God is angry with the wicked every day. That's a far cry from God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, isn't it? The false teaching of this day, these men will be judged. God says, He will speak to them in his anger. Anger means the flaring of the nostrils. It's like a bull ready to charge God in his wrath and flame to judge. That's the picture. God is moved with righteous justice against those who are in rebellion against him. He is moved by the rejection of his son, his anointed He is in a warlike posture against cosmic treason, against all those who oppose him, against all who continue in sin, in rebellion against his reign. These rebels are but sinners in the hands of an angry God, as Jonathan Edwards preached. But understand this. We know this from many texts. We're going to see it later in this psalm. God is patient. And that's why sinners are not right now experiencing God's divine wrath. But one day, his patience will come to an end. And this one, the supreme, this gracious one that has extended mercy upon all these nations, this one will execute judgment. He will execute judgment on all who have not entered into his kingdom, who have not bowed before him as supreme. Verse 5, then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. The root word for fury means to be set ablaze. So it's a reference to a red-hot fury, a kindled wrath. God must judge. He must deal with anarchy because he's holy and he's sovereign. It's who he is. David declared God's judgment in Psalm 9, 7 and 8. But the Lord abides forever, and he has established his throne for judgment. He will judge the world in righteousness, and he will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. His patience will run out. The rebels will face the red-hot fury of Almighty God, and every sin, every sin will be dealt with in righteous judgment. Psalm 9, 19, and 20, Arise, O Lord, do not prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. You see, we are but dust. You know, we say at a funeral, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. That's what I used to say. Now I say dust to dust, dust to glory for a believer. I got that from R.C. Sproul. Never thought of it before. Amazing. But we're but dust. And we think that we're something. We think that we can stand against this anointed one, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one that we we will give an account to, the one that will judge us. 
How foolish are we? You see, men apart from Christ walk in foolishness. Psalm 11, 4 through 6, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked, he will rain snares, fire and brimstone, burning wind will be the portion of their cup. He's promising judgment. And then David declares the people's rebellion, or after he declares the people's rebellion, after the Lord scoffs at them and promises fiery judgment, then the Lord declares his anointed, his sovereign one. Verse 6, but as for me, this is God speaking, this is the Father speaking, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy hill. You see, the nations may take counsel. They may tear off their cords and fetters, but God has established his king upon Zion, his holy mountain. God installed David in the mountains of the Lord, in the mountain of the Lord in Jerusalem. But this psalm ultimately speaks of the king of kings and Lord of lords. He who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, all judgment and all dominion. He is seated on God's holy mountain in heaven. This is the Messiah, folks. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of glory. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And as we will see next week, he is the resurrected King of glory. This reference to the one that I have begotten, we see in the New Testament that that's actually a reference to the resurrection and exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one that God, that God has highly exalted and given a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, not some knees, not those who choose to do it, but every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Yahweh, to the glory of God the Father. Folks, this is a true call to repentance. And that's what we will see in verses 10 through 12 next week. But I want to direct your attention to the words of David in another psalm. Listen to his words. And I lost the text. It's verses 10. No. Yeah, it's another text. I'm sorry. I thought I put in the reference. But this is what David said. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. Do you think he's happy with the wicked? Do you think he's happy with those who are in rebellion against him, who remain that way? Not for one minute. He is holy. He is righteous and he is just. Verse 12 says, if a man does not repent, see, there's that open door to repent. He will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He is ready. Back to the concept, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Where Jonathan Edwards pictured people being hung by a string, just a thin string over the flames of hell. 
Although David was the first king in the United Kingdom, he was a prominent man in history. But you can clearly see his heart, his allegiance to the Lord above in Psalm 5. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You see, he hates not just the sin, but the sinner. But he provides grace, as we know, for those who repent and believe the gospel. Verse 6, you destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors, what a strong word. He abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. But as for me, David says, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will bow in reverence for you. Bowing down in worship, submitting himself to a greater king than himself. And that's the call this morning, to bow in reverence before the Lord of glory, the sovereign one. Before we close, though, I want to add a few details that you're familiar with already, I'm sure. But it's the gospel, really. What happened that resulted in his exaltation? We know about the resurrection. I've already mentioned that. Before the text we read in Philippians 2, The Apostle Paul explains the work of God's Messiah. The Son of God in heaven existed in the likeness of the Father in glory, but he emptied himself. He emptied himself not of his deity, but he emptied himself of the manifestation of his deity, which is his glory, his majesty, and he took on human flesh, the incarnation. That's what we celebrated last night. And that's what we are to ponder throughout the year. Isaiah 53, 2 says, And he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. You see, the God of glory took on human flesh. He humbled himself. He took on human flesh. And he became like an ordinary man maybe even in his physical appearance, less than an ordinary man. But that one was God in human flesh. We know from Matthew 3 that this one is Yahweh. He's the fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 3. But notice, if you go back to Philippians 2, he further humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You see, on the cross, he became sin for us. God's wrath was poured out upon him, the wrath that we have earned through our sin and our rebellion, the wrath of those worthy of judgment, so that the saving Messiah satisfied God's judgment Judge, judgment, really justice, we should say, so that all who call upon him will be saved. Those who come to him in faith, those who bow before him, then the Father highly exalted him, and he was raised by the power of God from death, victorious over sin, death, and the grave, and was exalted to the right hand of the Father where he now reigns. That's what we're going to see next week. 
Folks, it is his reign that I want to be under. Not the dominion of darkness, not following the evil one in all his wickedness that leads to destruction. I want to be under God's reign, the one that is glorious, who is just and righteous and merciful, loving and full of grace. I would suggest to you this morning that this one in whom Psalm 2 points, ultimately points, is the only one worthy of our worship. There is no other. He is alone. He is the theocracy. He is supreme. He is glorious. He is loving. He is merciful for those who fall before him in worship and seeking his forgiveness. Would you cry out to him for mercy? Would you repent of a life of sin and rebellion, of a determination to go your own way? Would you repent of dead works? Would you be saved from this perverse generation? Would you turn from idols to serve the living God? Would you trust this Messiah with all your heart? There's no other name given among men in heaven, in heaven among men whereby you must be saved. The gospel demands a response. We proclaim the good news. We believe it and we are to repent. It demands it. Eternity, your eternity demands it. There is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. Communion is a celebration for those in God's kingdom. It's a remembrance of the Lord's death through which we were purchased, redeemed, and brought into his kingdom. We're children of God. Subjects of the king. And of course, communion is a visual demonstration of the gospel. The unleavened bread represents Christ's sinless body that was broken. And through the breaking of his body, the, through the opening of the veil, so to speak, we've been brought into God's presence without guilt. We were children of the evil one, but now we've been brought into his presence. No guilt. No sin as his children. He has dressed us in perfect righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Mitchell talked about it last night, that exchange. We call it the great exchange. He lived a sinless life, and his perfect life, his righteousness is given to us. He died on the cross. Our sins are imputed to him. So, his righteousness is imputed to us our, because our sins was imputed to him. He bore our sins. The wine represents the blood of Christ. See, it was death by the shedding of blood. That's how I like to say it. Death by the shedding of blood. The wine represents that blood. The blood that washes away all sin. The bitterness of the wine, I believe, represents God's justice and wrath, but the sweetness represents abundant blessings. So the, G so the Lord Jesus Christ took our wrath that we might receive blessing. If you're not in the kingdom of God, communion is not for you. But if you're in the kingdom, if you've been born again, if you've had a heavenly birth, 
this is for you. It is true worship. The Lord's Supper, communion, the breaking of bread. But if we are believers, we first must examine ourselves and repent of any sins, confess those sins, and everything that prevents intimate communion with the King. This charge is not to prevent you, you believers, from partaking. It's to challenge you to prepare your heart so that you can partake, so that you can commune with the God of glory. It's important that you do not partake in an unworthy manner. If you do, without first examining yourself, you will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord and suffer the consequences as 1 Corinthians 11 speaks of. I want to challenge you now, right now to worship the Lord, to examine your own heart as I will mine, that we might partake in a worthy manner. And if you're not a believer, if you're not sure you're born again, this is a time to contemplate this God of glory, this anointed one, who sits on the throne in heaven. Contemplate his sacrificial death. Contemplate his resurrection. Contemplate his exaltation. And may it convict your heart that you might repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.